Thank you so, so much for joining us on another edition of uh, Mwango Spaces. My name is Eric Mokaya. I'm the founder of Mwango Capital. We usually hold this every Friday from around uh, 8 p.m. Uh, to 9 p.m. and 10 sometimes. The core essence of some of these spaces is usually just to discuss issues and matters focused on African capital markets. And today, there's an issue that is also affecting like the African capital markets and in particular the private market space. That's why we have this conversation. I should say that I didn't know much about David uh, before this article and came out and actually before this week. And I've been working in the payment space with a company called Klarna, uh, the payments company uh, globally in the last uh, six months. Uh, I'm new to this space, but very interested. I've learned a lot in the six months and that's how I came to know about Flutterwave. I recommended like some Flutterwave articles within the, the organization. I've seen very positive responses because it's a company that is well known in this space, at least uh, even in Klarna. Uh, so in that regard then, earlier this year, we saw Flutterwave become one of the highest valued private companies in Africa. And I think that catches the attention of a lot of people. I work a little bit with the U.S. public market companies, so I get to interact with a few of the investors in this space, and that's how I've also uh, come to see Flutterwave become a big kind of hope on the continent in terms of valuation and in terms of what is uh, possible. So when a story like this comes out, then it's of essence that we get to understand what the key issues are, how it affects the payment ecosystem, in particular, but also like generally how it affects the tech space in Africa, also the startup ecosystem in Africa. This week, a friend who knows that we host spaces reached out to David, and then I said that I was okay with hosting a space. And graciously, David has agreed to be with us. As a matter of record, we've also reached out to Flutterwave to invite them to the spaces, but I think like they're in a period where they can't comment on some of these issues. So I think that's why we were unable to get them on record. I've also personally reached out to Ian with E to invite him to the spaces. So I think there's an invitation open. He declined though. With me hosting today is Dean. Uh, maybe Dean, you can introduce yourself a little bit. Dean. Good evening, morning, afternoon, everyone, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Dean, currently working at Kama Chain, FinTech out of Nigeria. I've been active in the startup world on and off the last eight years. And I'm a a passionate believer in African greatness, and I believe that we need to be able to come together and solve challenges when they arise. And I'm super excited to be here today and get some thoughts, not only from David, but from everyone in the space about how we can build a stable, inclusive, high quality startup and business ecosystem in Africa. Um, just here to assist Mongo. I host a few sessions with Mwango every so often. Thanks. Dean is co-host, just in case something falls off, uh, he'll take charge. Important to note that uh, Mwango Capital is based in East Africa, so we are looking at this from an East African perspective, but we're very, very interested, as you can see, like Dean works in Nigerian. Lots of people I can see from Nigeria, so welcome to the space. To the core issue at heart, David, uh, maybe you can introduce yourself. For those who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? So my name is David Dane. I'm a Nigerian uh, investigative journalist, uh, writer, and researcher. I've been in and around the space for the best part of 10 years now, but I went into what you would refer to as frontline journalism about three years ago. I've been in and around the ecosystem. I've been a news anchor. I've been a TV writer on, on a show called uh, The Other News, with which was featured in, in a Netflix special. I've 
I worked radio. I've been here, there, and everywhere. But in 2018, I decided to settle in the online journalism space, which is where I've kind of made the biggest uh, impression of my career so far. Currently live under asylum protection in exile. And yes, that's pretty much all, all there is to know about. All right. To start on a kind of personal note, maybe you can give a little more detail on who you are as a person and how you ended up with your interest in uh, investigative journalism. Right. Um, I could spend hours talking about that, but I'm, I'm not really sure anyone wants to listen to me talk about that about myself for hours so I was just trying to keep this really brief I, I think when I made the decision to to do this as a thing like permanently I think this was sometime in 2019 the, the first ever what you would call investigative story that I ever did which was I think in July or was it June 2019 it was a story about it was a relatively small story actually it was about things going on in a, a hospital in my hometown so I, I come from a town called Badagri in Lagos, Nigeria. So the first ever investigative story I did was a story which was about that hospital. It was actually part of a project that was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. At the time, I was the head producer of an online uh, TV station called uh, The Sheet TV, which was on the Rise Networks, which is an NGO. So that particular project was funded by, by the MacArthur Foundation. So I, I had a team, there was a, there was a video editor, there was a cameraman, I had a presenter, and we actually went undercover to Badagri and we went into the hospital and we gathered intel, we gathered information. So basically there was a, there were a ton of terrible things going on at, at the hospital. The generators didn't have diesel, so there was no electricity at the hospital. So you had surgeons performing stuff like a cesarean section using their phone flashlights. There was no running water. So as against the global standard of uh, washing your hands under running water, which is what doctors are supposed to do, they had to use buckets and dailers to wash their hands, which of, in itself constitutes a contamination risk for a surgeon performing an invasive surgery. The hospital pharmacy didn't have stock. So if you wanted to get treated at the hospital, you needed to basically buy everything you needed from outside, including gloves. It was just a really terrible situation. So there was a, it was a story and a documentary. So I, I wrote the story and I, I co-produced the, the documentary. And the story came out and it's, for whatever reason, I've never seen something I've written have that kind of impact before. The Lagos State Health Service Commission took action. They started paying unscheduled visits to the hospital. And things actually started to improve. The MD of the hospital almost got fired. So prior to the story, the maternal mortality rate at the hospital was, was about 40%. And after the story, it dropped to about just under 20%, which is still too high. But just for the fact that I did a story and it actually saved people's lives, that made me feel like, okay, this is something that I didn't realize I was actually good at this thing. Now that I've, I've done this thing and it's had this impact, I, I want to do more of it. At the time, it wasn't even a, a job per se. It was just like a passion project. Something else I should mention is I come from a marketing and PR background. So, which is why I set up in and around the space for the best part of a decade. I wasn't always in the journalism space. So, although I, I started off as a journalist, but then my, to all intents and purposes, my actual career took off at a place called Black House Media, which is a PR agency, one of the biggest PR agencies in Nigeria. So at the time, we we're doing work for Interswitch, we we're doing work for Nigerian Breweries, which is basically Heineken. We we're doing work for Viacom, which is like MTV. Nickelodeon. We're doing work for MTN, 
So we were heavy and everywhere. We did work for Etisalat as well. So I came from that background. Typically, people move from journalism into comms. I moved in the opposite direction because why not? <laughs> so at that time, I was still sort of doing content creation as my job. Right. I actually had a content creation agency that I ran. It was called Topstar Nigeria. At its peak, I had five people on payroll. But after that story and the impact that it had, I started sort of using more of my time to focus on hard journalism because for the first time, I felt as if something I'm doing actually genuinely matters. It has a purpose. And it's not just about submitting an invoice and getting paid at the end of the month, even though I was making good money for what I was doing. And eventually, in 2020, I made the decision to transition altogether, uh, which was after I did a, a story which uh, was cited in a federal high court ruling in Abuja. You probably aren't familiar with the story, but at the time, in 2019, there was a phenomenon in, in the capital, in Abuja, where young ladies were getting kidnapped off the streets by policemen and by thugs working for an agency called the, the Abuja Environmental Protection Bureau, which was headed by someone who was basically an Islamic fundamentalist, as I came to find out. And terrible things used to happen to them in custody. They used to get raped. In one instance, there was a nursing mother who got snatched off the street and got raped in custody, like all sorts of awful things like that. My then editor at Newswire, Mercy Abang, she brought the story to me. And she, she had actually done maybe like 50% of the work already. She had actually like interviewed the victims and whatnot. So all she actually wanted from me was just sort of to draft it, to write it, because she thought I wrote really well. But then I decided that I could give it another angle. So I requested for all the material that she had and for access to the victim. And I turned it into, as against just a news report, I made it a, a narrative experience with audiovisual elements as well, because I come from a, from a TV background too. So I do have those skills in, in audio and, and visual editing. Uh, it had a really big impact, right? And eventually the lady at the helm, she got fired silently. And one of the victims who was cited in my story, when she sued the, the agency in question, and in December 2019, she won her case. And my story was cited in the high court judgment by uh, Justice Binter. And that was when I made the decision that, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the foreseeable future. This is what I've decided I'm going to do. This is what I'm good at. I think I'm good enough at this to actually sort of make a living off of this. So yeah, the rest is history pretty much. 2020, that was when I sort of started building up a reputation as a guy who was the person to go to when nobody else was going to take on a particular story, like stories that nobody else wants to take on. This is the guy you go to and he's going to take it on because he simply doesn't really look at anybody's face. So. I, that was where that came from. Toward the end of the year, I had to flee the country because after the incident, which I'm sure you heard of, the Lekki massacre at the end of the NSARS protest movement in Nigeria, at the time, because, you know, bear in mind that I, was, I still had my former colleagues at the PR agency I used to work at, they, obviously they worked for, for MTN, so I still had access to information that wasn't in the public domain. So shortly after the massacre, there was a statement which was supposed to be put out by Alton, which is the, the umbrella body for uh, mobile network providers in Nigeria, and had, I had access to that statement. The statement never went out, but I had access to that statement. And what the statement basically did was that it confirmed that on the night of the Lekki massacre, the internet outages that people around the Lekki area experienced wasn't, in fact, due to the actions of, of the network. The, network, the networks did not um, intentionally 
brought to the People's Internet State, but that they suffered deliberate and systematic coordinated uh, sabotage on their physical infrastructure. People dug up their fiber optic cables and sabotaged them simultaneously at different points. And obviously, the only people who have that, who have that capacity at the time were people linked to the government, because at the time, there was a statewide curfew, I think 6, uh, 5 p.m. curfew or something like that. So there was no way it was going to be some random people. And then doing so in a coordinated manner. So I got access to that statement, and I knew that I had a story that was basically going to implicate the government in what was then possibly the biggest story of the year. And I knew that it was time to leave because I'd already received several warnings before then that you're a troublemaker and you're going to end up in, in an SSS on the ground cell. Um, for the non-Nigerians listening, the SSS is Nigeria's secret police. I actually have an uncle, whom I don't speak to anymore, by the way, but he's a like, sort of a like, high-ranking government official, a member of the ruling party and whatnot. And I remember in 2019, I went home for the Salah celebration, celebrate with the extended family. And he took me aside and he said it with a smile on his face, but you know, he wasn't really smiling inside when he said it because there was really intent behind it. And he said, look, I've been saying these things you've been writing and do you know that it, the DSS uh, cell in, in Abuja goes seven stories on the ground and that with these glasses on your face, you're not going to see anything inside there. You know, so these things have been coming. So I made a decision to flee the country in November 2020. I went into exile, uh, which is sort of partly why I'm not currently allowed to stay where I am. And yeah, but since then, I've doubled down on, if you like, on that uh, reputation as the enfant terrible, the guy you go to where absolutely nobody else is going to take on this story. And incidentally, that's pretty much how this story came about as well, because um, nobody else was going to take on a story about Flutterway. Flutterway was a very powerful company, not just in the tech space, but in the Nigerian corporate space, period. Nobody wants to take them on. So you're not going to take this story to any sort of establishment media operation they're just not going to answer you nobody wants to touch it so again i was that guy so here we are incredible story it lays a lot of context to uh what you're going to talk about most in the spaces which is the story which you finally have on flat wave itself i think that the background set uh, a little bit of precedence uh, so that people understand at least where you're coming from as an individual and what you're interested in is in on this story so perhaps now you can tell us how you ended up getting interested in flutterwave i know it's the biggest right now it's one of the most highly valued startup in africa but then when you started six months ago it wasn't uh, so what led you to the story so the actual process of researching is was what started six months ago but i've actually sort of had the sort of passive interest in the story for the best part of two years now. So I, this probably goes back to maybe 2019 when I first started having conversations. So funny story, I, I think this was in 2019. I have a friend, um, not sure I should mention his name because this was a, a private conversation. So I won't mention his name, but I have a friend who, who is in the tech space and he's a pretty close friend of mine. He's a family friend as well. So we were having the conversation and he just happened to mention in a very sort of offhand, casual manner that, oh, you know, like, the, you know, Flutterwave is, it's, it's an access bank thing. It was just like a throwaway comment. And it registered in my mind and I tried to like pull him up on it and take him back to it, but he didn't really want to go back there. So I let it go. But that, it, it just registered in my head the way he said it so flippantly and so offhand. The way you say things when you know them as a matter of fact, and it's so factual that you don't even think about it when you're saying it. And it just struck me that, what is going on here under the hood? Because at the time, I had no idea. 
that there was any such relationship. I didn't know anything about Bloodsworth at, at the time. I sort of bought the cover story that it was this sort of organic, exciting new entity fronted by this young founder, fresh out of Mandela, you know, and that's the end of the story. That's all there was to it. So that was the first time that that story was challenged in my head. I didn't necessarily want to do anything about it. I, I wasn't interested in from a journalistic point of view. It was just like gossip, almost, right? But over between 2019 and maybe like the middle of last year, from time to time, like these little tidbits of information would keep popping up here and there. I, I remember I used to have these really epic sort of exchanges with one of the minor characters in the story who you know, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. And someone just happened to just mention it in, in a similar offhand manner to me one day. Like, oh, yeah, he was fired. And you know, again, it was just one of those moments again, like, what do you mean he was fired? He's a, he's a founder, isn't he? How, how the hell do you fire a founder? So again, that's stuck in there. But what really sort of made it turn into a journalistic thing for me, that, okay, this is the story I want to go after, was when, and again, there's no way I'm, I'm going to reveal like a source or anything. So yeah, anything I say, you just have to take it. That's as much as you're going to get, unfortunately. I can't really say more than that. But toward the, the Q4, 2021, I started having conversation with correspondence with somebody who was, who was, I would say, very close to the operation. And this was somebody who basically kept insisting that, you know what, if there's one person in Nigeria who can tell this story, I think it's you, right? So I, I think this was shortly after I did, uh, it was a story I did in September. It was a story about a, a scandal in the Nigeria Immigration Service. Basically, a story that uncovered the fellow who has the exclusive contract to print Nigerian passports. This fellow used to be a, a diplomat, and he was a disgraced diplomat because he was dismissed from the diplomatic service for using his diplomatic pouch to... Uh, traffic cocaine internationally and somehow this fellow gained the exclusive contract to bring Nigerian passports. It turned out that this fellow was, was from my hometown as well by marriage. So there was a lot that went on during that period. And that was when this unnamed individual started corresponding with me. Now, I didn't even know this person at all. And this person somehow got hold of my encrypted proton mail address, which is not in public domain. I don't put that address out normally. So I, I didn't even know how the person got hold of this email address and the person just kept sending me emails and just kept telling me you need to look into this you need to look into that you know i get loads of these messages on a daily basis people sending me stuff about their employer or their ex-employer you know investigate this investigate that and that's not how i select stories i don't select stories because somebody entered my dm and told me investigate this that's not how the selection process works so i ignored it for a while but then i think when i finally decided that, okay, there's, there's actually something here, was when I, this person sent me the mail thread, which you saw in the story, right? The mail thread from the Eko Minaj character. So and this was the first time I was seeing something solid, that, okay, this went out to, this went to the founders, the founding team, and this went to investors, and this resulted in at least one investor pulling out. That, okay, so there's a story here, because one thing I come to understand about Plotwave at that point was that, Regardless of anything else you, have, you might have to say about Flood, that the company's information management um, capacity is world-class, right? So stuff that they don't want you to hear about, you never hear it. You, so there's so much going on under the hood, but you just wouldn't know if you're not within the system because they have this amazing capacity to prevent stuff 
from getting out. So even though this whole echo blackmailed on mine and whatnot, and I can say with all confidence that the majority of people listening in this space today probably had no idea, myself included, had no idea when, when any of this was going on. Because that's how good they were at keeping things on the wraps. Even working with Twitter and other platforms to get those accounts shut down really, really quickly. Like a lot of this was just completely scrubbed off the internet. Nobody had any clue that it happened. But this person sent me that mail thread. And that was when for the first time my interest was piqued. That okay, there, there is something here. Something happened here. It's not as if people don't tell lies against powerful people. That happens too. But I've been around long enough as a journalist to know when you're reading an account and there, there it's highly likely that there are some elements of, of truth in this account. So it's something worth pursuing. And that really got me interested. So from around October last year was when that happened. So between then and I would say the end of February or the, no, no, the, the beginning of March really was when the, the process of reaching out to people, like that slow, tedious process of reaching out to people, trying to cultivate relationships, trying to see who is going to be willing to talk. And that was a really slow and frustrating process, actually. So the actual elimination, I think that started December. The first time I actually reached out to someone, an ex-employee of Flutterwave, I think it was December. And I think the final time I spoke like the, to someone, an ex-employee or a current employee for, for the first time, I think was the final week of March. So there was just a lot of back and forth. There were lots of people who, as soon as they hear my name, they go, right, I have no interest in talking to you. Please speak to the photo with comms team. There were some who were like, I had a feeling you'd reach out to me one day. I'm not sure I want to talk to you yet. Let me think about it. There were some who were forthcoming, like, okay, this happened. And yes, you are right in thinking that this happened. However, I'm not going to give you any evidence because I might self-implicate if I do that. And you're not allowed to quote me either. And then more, perhaps very interesting, in terms of the number of non-disclosure agreements I had to sign, this was probably the most frustrating story I've ever had to work on because there are so many people who, before they even agree to have a conversation with you, the first thing is execute this non-disclosure agreement first. I've spoken to my lawyer. My lawyer says that that happened at least six times. Aside, I, I executed at least six different non-disclosure agreements. That hasn't happened before. That was the first time in my career that I've interacted with people who were this terrified, who were this afraid of giving me information, even though they weren't going to be named, even though their information was going to be redacted, even though their voices were going to be concealed if they had recordings. No, no, they just weren't interested. It was just... I might give you what you're looking for under the strictest of confidence, but first of all, you're going to sign an NDA. And then secondly, you're not allowed to put this out there. So then after going back and forth with them, there was a second round of going back and forth with them. Okay, if you want me to help you tell your story, because clearly you also want something. You have a story that you think needs to be told for whatever reason. Some people are trying to get hold of their shares, which weren't issued to them. Some people are trying to get a fair price. For their shares and after being offered prices some people are just trying to get justice after being victimized you know whatever it is you want something and i'm your guy right i'm probably the only journalist in nigeria who's going to take on being ball and nobody else is going to do it but to help you do this thing i need something from you i need this information without this information i can't do my work journalism isn't magic 
right? The way the way it happens in the movies where there's some guy, but some Sherlock Holmes character with a long coat and a top hat and a cigarette in his mouth, who goes around, you know, sniffing for clues and you know, looking at people's footprints. That's not how it works in real life. That's that it couldn't be further from that. In real life, lots of what we refer to as investigative journalism, 90% of it is cultivating relationships with people and trying to get information. Basically, that's what 90% of the job is. Just trying to get as much information as you can find from as many sources as you can find them in as many ways as you can access that information. So that means that you have to be very handy with, with all kinds of computer-based activity. You have to be very handy with the computer. You have to be very good at online and offline research. You need to have a phone with a very large contact book because you need, to, you need to have so many people you could reach out to who could reach out to someone who could reach out to someone on your behalf. So it's a really lengthy and very, very physically exhausting thing to do, which is why, again, my output isn't more than one story a month, right? I do, even though the publication is called West Africa Weekly, it publishes monthly, it doesn't publish weekly. When I signed my contract with Substack, had a very optimistic outlook that I was going to publish twice weekly. I was going to publish twice a week and blah, 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 blah. Very quickly, I learned that with these kinds of stories, these like long read investigations, like five, 6,000, 7,000 word stories, there's no way you're going to put in out two of those every week. Otherwise, the quality is going to suffer drastically. So it's monthly that I do these things. And sometimes these things are set up for months in advance before they actually go out. What are the key issues that your article raises in your investigative analysis? What are some of the key issues that, for someone who hasn't read the article, it's a quick guide to what exactly is happening. And perhaps also when you speak, especially of the key players in the story, you give a little bit of background so that people, especially for Mr. Africa, who are not very aware of the space, can understand you well. Let's discuss the gist of the article. What's the article all about? So there's this African fintech unicorn called Flutterwave, which recently achieved the valuation of three billion US dollars, which makes it the most valuable tech startup in Africa, period. And one of the most valuable business entities on the African continent as well. The most valuable tech startup in Africa. This company started operation in 2016. So which means in just six years of, of, of operation, it's gone from zero to three billion, which makes it one of the most inspiring success stories on the African continent. The founder is uh, a guy called Bega Bola, uh, GB, as he's most commonly known. And the two co-founders are fellows called uh, Adelika Adekoya. And uh, now the cover story was that basically Ian founded Flutterwave, right? Ian was the, the guy who was the execution guy, basically. He was the guy who drove strategy. He was the guy who turned the company into a powerhouse, who took it from zero to series A or series B or whatever. And then he left in 2018 for some unspecified reason. And then GB took over and the company has been growing in leaps and bounds since then. And it's basically been rainbows and unicorns and roses, right? That's what the cover story is. In reality, it's quite different. And I, I, I don't really want to start like going over the entire article again, because I feel like even just doing that makes me feel mentally exhausted just from the sheer amount of work that went into it. That final draft alone, took me 27 hours because I timed it. And when I sat down to start the final draft to when I sent it off to my editor for the for her to have a look at 27 straight hours in a chair without sleep, right? So just going through that in my mind again, 
I, I feel physically exhausted. So I don't want this session to turn into a summary of the story. I believe everyone here should have read the story. And if you haven't, please read it. That should give you all the information that you're looking for. But basically, the main characters are GB, that's Ginga Boa, also known as Greg sometimes. There's uh, uh, Adelika Adekoya, who is his co-founder, who also worked at Access Bank simultaneously while building Flutterwave. There's uh, Herbert, Herbert Wigwe, who was the CEO of Access Bank at the time. There's uh, Ingi Aboyeji, who is really a major character in the story, but he has been mentioned because he, he was there. There's uh, then the, the people, the sources whose names I changed in the story. So names I assigned to them were Jennifer, Ose, Temi, and Shay. So Jennifer is sort of like a high-flying career woman who is convinced by GB to take her job at, at Flutterwave, right? This is somebody who comes from a very structured financial services background and has a job offer at a bank and is instead convinced to go join a startup based on the promise that she's going to have like this really generous stock compensation package. And as you may or may not know, if a startup achieves scale, good scale within a, a night, a short space of time, the, the share value of that startup, if you hold significant uh, shareholding in that startup, it could make you incredibly wealthy in a short space of time. So it's one of the promises of working in a startup, right? The salary might not be as much as what a multinational might be able to pay you in some cases, but the possibility of making two, three million dollars is very real, right? So based on that promise, she joined the organization and she did very well. There were a lot of documents I gained access to, which unfortunately I wasn't able to put in the story based on legal advice because she's currently in the uh, National Industrial Court. So based on legal advice, it was advised that some of those things, if they were included in the story, might harm her chances of winning the case just based on the fact that they're supposed to be held back as jokers in court. So those things were held back. Even though I have them, I couldn't publish them. And I can't even say what they were. But suffice to say that she had no problem whatsoever with on-the-job performance. She got promoted twice, and she was constantly getting verbal and written commendations from GB himself. However, the issue started when, and this was based on, like this is based on uh, court records. Right. And these records are open and available to anyone who goes there. So the problem apparently started when, for whatever reason, she fell out of favor with GB. It wasn't stated uh, very, very categorically, but the inference in the court documents was that essentially she rejected his advances and then he stopped liking her. And from that point, there was basically constructive dismissal that took place. Because from that point, despite the fact that she was meeting all her KPIs, and she even got promoted once after that. But GB stopped seeing anything good in what she did. There's this particular uh, instance which is cited in, in these documents where there's a, I think it's a company retreat, is it? And everybody else gets assigned a hotel room at the retreat, everyone except her. And she's like a team lead of a, of a core team and she's not assigned a hotel room she's not allowed to travel with everybody else and so on the day her team is presenting she has to sort of go there like a day tripper and like act like everything is okay when she wasn't even with the team she wasn't allowed to be there you know that kind of like really awful like ostracization kind of thing 
and eventually like she got like really frustrated with that kind of treatment and she left now it was stated very clearly on her offer letter that she was a part of our conversation package was a stock options uh, it wasn't stated how many stocks right however in the court documents it's also stated that the then ceo that's in Aboyeji, signed off on a letter approving the, the allocation of 40,000 units of Flutterwave shares to her. Shortly after that, he was fired, and nobody knows what happened to that letter. He himself wasn't even able to get access to the letter because he was fired in a very abrupt and ruthless manner. So basically, he was on his way to a meeting with someone that Flutterwave was pitching to, and he just discovered that couldn't access his emails, couldn't access his Slack, couldn't access any of his Flutterwave accounts. And that was that, pretty much. So... Basically, she never got her shares. She was never officially allocated those shares, even though it was stated on her offer letter and on her confirmation letter that you're going to be given shares. So basically, she's in court. So that was pretty much the meat of the first story. Now, the ancillary stories around her were those of other people who didn't even agree to speak to me as such. And I can't really go into the things I had to do to get hold of, of some of those receipts that I included in the story. Uh, again, that was why, as I said, this was one of the most exhausting stories I've ever worked on. And I'm just going to put this out there. You know, journalists don't normally like have a go at their sources, right? Because a journalist is only as good as his sources. A journalist is nothing without his sources. But I must say that of all the sources that I've ever worked with in my career, and I've worked with a lot of sources, right? I've worked with sources in the security services. I've worked with sources in multinationals. I've worked with sources across the private and public sector. I've worked with sources in foreign countries, all sorts of, I've worked with criminal sources, right? Of all the sources I've ever had to work with, I, I would say this particular set of sources, like X and current Flutterwave people were the most exhausting set of sources I've ever had to work with, just absolutely exhausting. And I mean that in every sense of the word physically exhausting to work with but that's by the way so i was able to get hold of, of some of the ancillary stories kind of similar to hers so in some cases it would be that this person also wasn't officially allocated the stocks while their colleagues were their colleagues whom they came in around the same time with and their colleagues who had better relationships with your guy at the top those ones were able to to get their stocks while these ones didn't in some cases it would be that even the ones who got the stocks were then forced to sell at ridiculous prices, right? So that's kind of where one of the, the major uh, points of the story that was highlighted, where the accepted market price for Flutterwave shares then was something in the region of $20. And so basically Flutterwave had just sealed a $170 million funding round. It hadn't been announced yet. They were going to announce it on March 12th. And then on March one. They sent an email round to all of their staff that had uh, stock options, basically telling them that, okay, you are being offered an exit at the price of $3.50. Knowing full well that on March 12th, this was March 12, 2021, on March 12th, that, that stock price is going to jump up to 20 right? Knowing that. So essentially the idea was make them sell at a fraction of the actual price of this. And then they are not allowed to sell to pretty much like just a random secondary investor who is willing to pay this price. No, the company has to approve the investor that you are allowed to sell 
these shares to. And it just so happens that the entity that ended up buying most of these shares is an entity that they all told me is linked to Bank Agbola, an entity that he controls. So essentially, you have the CEO fraudulently buying back company shares of his staff at knockdown prices, knowing full well that in, a, in another couple of weeks, those prices are going to be worth six or seven times the, the prices that, he, that he's paying for them now, which is insider trading. And it's illegal, by the way. I don't know if it's illegal under Nigerian law. It's definitely illegal under American law. And Flutterway happens to be registered in Delaware, headquartered in San Francisco. So it's an American company, which makes it subject to American laws. So that was that. Then the two characters whom I stylized as Tami and Ose. These were the people that I would refer to as OGs. These were people who were there from the beginning or close to it. So these were people who metaphorically know where all the bodies are buried. One of them was significantly less willing to, to talk than the other, although I was able to get some useful receipts out of both of them. But again, that took an incredible amount of back and forth, an incredible amount of just work, let me just put it that way. An incredible back and forth. I would say some measure of psychological warfare as well went into it because knowing full well that these people read my tweets or they read my business day columns because I write a popular column in Nigeria. So I decided to include some of these subliminal messages in those tweets and columns. So I remember in early March, I think it was, I don't late February, early March, I did a column talking about Susan Fowler. That's the female developer at Uber who basically outed Travis Kalanick, right? And the sort of toxic culture he had going under him at, at Uber in San Francisco. And we all know the sort of domino effect that ended up having on the rest of the tech space in America and around the world. So I did a, a column about Susan Fowler where I basically said, hey, you know, this lady was just 25 and she did this thing and this thing changed the world, right? The title of the column, I think, was... Uh, Susan Fowler and the, the futility of bargaining with bullies or something, or something to that effect. So I was basically saying that, look, this was a 25-year-old upstart. So she was nobody and nothing. And she decided to stand up to a bully. And she did so using the most powerful thing you can use to stand up to, to, to an office bully, which is the truth, right? Documented truth, which, you know, is difficult to counteract or to deny, right? Because it's all there, the screenshots and everything. And that was basically how she won. She she kept the receipts and she put them out at the appropriate time. I, I put out that business they call them. And very interestingly, one of these people whom I ended up speaking to later on, when I got hold of her contact and I sent a message to her initially, she said she wasn't going to talk to me. And then a couple of hours later, she then reached out to me and we started talking. And later on, she, she, she confessed to me that when... I saw your message. The first thing I did was I went and Googled your name. And the first thing that came up was that article about Susan Fowler and I read it and I started crying. All right. So I would say to an extent that psychological warfare actually worked. It actually had noticeable effects because from that person specifically, I was able to get some very useful information and some useful receipts as well, some of which were actually included in the story. So Tammy and also they... They were very useful, even though not always the most, the easiest people to do that back and forth with, because something else you have to bear in mind is that these are people who, who are significantly older than I am. I turn 32 next month and maybe significantly further along in their career than I am in mine. So maybe there's an element of why on earth do I have to open myself up to you? 
at this point in my life, maybe I have kids or something. Why am I opening myself up to this, you know, this 32 year old fun terrible, you know? Why do I have to op- open myself up to you? Why do I have to potentially self-implicate to you? Why do I trust you with any of this information? So there was just an incredible amount of back and forth and forth and back. But eventually I got things that I needed. Well, most of them anyway. The very interesting thing about this story was I would say at least 40% of the receipts that I actually had weren't able to go into the story because at the last minute, it was always, I've spoken to my lawyer, I've looked at it. I'm also going to say this as well. This is the first thing I've ever worked on where when I'm done with the story, somebody else has a look at it apart from my editor. That hasn't happened before. But this story, because of legal implications, because of all sorts of legal permutations and whatnot, I hated doing it, but I had to give people access to look at the draft, right? The the, the, the sources, I mean, okay. And then it was, oh, oh, please, you have to take this out. You have to take this out. This, you know, this might implicate me, implicates somebody close to me, take this out. And eventually I had to sort of like put my foot down and be like, okay, that's it. I don't work for you people. And my loyalty is to the facts of the matter. It's the truth. It's not to you. So I'm making the call now that this is going to the editor as is, right? And I had to put my foot down and there were a few strobes, there were a few tantrums, a few people were very unhappy, probably possibly still are. But at the end of the day, a journalist's primary loyalty is to the facts of the story, not to the individuals. And that's something which I find it very difficult to forget, right? Nigeria is a kind of operating environment where you are reminded every single day that you're not loved, you're useful. It's not the same thing. And you should never confuse the two. And I always keep that distinction very, very clear in my head. So the final stylized character in the story, um, uh, stylized Arashi, this is somebody who pretty much every source I spoke to in the story stated in a non-salacious, non-accusatory manner, but it was stated just as a matter of fact thing that, yes, everybody knew that she had an ongoing thing with GB at the time, and that people even saw them on multiple occasions in very compromising uh, positions, both in Nigeria and outside Nigeria, when they would travel for company events and whatnot. So this wasn't even news. It wasn't even a anything. Like it wasn't really groundbreaking gossip or anything. It was something that was stated almost like it was a boring detail, right? And she was she happened to be somebody that I know personally. So I reached out to her. And we had a Zoom conversation and she basically confirmed these things without confirming it, because I, I think she's obviously smart enough not to directly self-replicate. But she basically said, you know what? I'm not sure I'm ready to tell my story yet. So let me sleep on it. And then she slept on it. And then the next morning I got my answer and it was this really like, bear in mind, this is somebody that I know personally. And it was this very impersonal, stiffly worded message, which I put in the story. It was like something written from the corporate communications department or the company she works for, she works for or something. And she basically said, look, I currently still have a professional relationship with Flutterwave, you know, because obviously Flutterwave has some sort of financial interest in the company she works at. So nobody really wants to take on that fight with anybody. So, and then very interestingly in the message, I never had an inappropriate relationship with the fellow real kid and I was never sexually harassed by GB. 
Now, if you analyze that sentence, that sentence has two parts, and the two parts mean completely different things. She could easily have said, I never had an inappropriate relationship with the Ferrari UK or GB. Instead, she said, no, I never had an inappropriate which we can assume is true. And I said, I was never sexually harassed by GB. And there's an obvious hidden implication in there that, okay, well, you know, we might have had something, but he didn't harass me. It was consensual. That was the obvious inference for me. What she didn't know was that I missed all of this, probably since, I think it was December or January, I'd had a secret recording of her, which she probably didn't even know existed, where she basically said, look, if the company is thinking that I am the one behind the anonymous Twitter blackmail thing, the Echo Minaj thing, and they think about accusing me, I'm going to put out a blog post about my experience and float away, but I'm going to shut the company down. And I put that recording in the story and I digitally altered her voice so, so she wouldn't be identifiable, basically, because she has a very distinctive voice. And then the other uh, recording that I managed to get my hands on after months and months and months of going back and forth, and like I had to do all sorts of things to gain enough confidence to get my hands on that recording. The recording of GB speaking at the town hall, which was organized in the wake of the loss of investment, the investor that pulled out following the Twitter and email campaign. So in that recording, what GB essentially said was, bear in mind that this was a campaign which was basically saying that Benga, Agbola, and Iferi okay, are abusing their power. They're abusing their positions and using that power to basically sleep with their subordinates in the office, multiple subordinates in the office. That's a very, very interesting aside. There was a story which I heard from three different sources. Obviously, it's very unlikely you're going to see written evidence of this because, again, it's a story that doesn't exist anywhere but in the memories of the people who, whom it happened to. But there was a girl whose name I cannot mention who was dating uh, her colleague, like a, a co-worker at Flutterwave. And then this guy apparently was planning to propose to her or something like he really, he really loved her or whatever, took her serious. And then one day she just announced to him randomly that she's done. She's not dating him any longer. She doesn't, she wants to break up. And this guy was really like all torn up and heartbroken and confused. Like, where the hell did that come from, man? So he then went to investigate, find out what happened. And here's like, again, when I heard what he did to investigate, that's what further convinced me that this story needed to be told. Because this isn't just a story about Flutterwave. This is a story about the Nigerian financial system, the Nigerian banking system. Like, there's too much unethical stuff going on for things to just move on challenge. Apparently, what this guy did was he suspected that if a real kid was, was sleeping with, with his girlfriend, right? Was sleeping with his now ex-girlfriend, but he couldn't prove it. So apparently he used to be a banker. He used to work at Access Bank. So apparently he, he called a friend who worked at Zenith Bank, right? Not even the same bank, a different bank, right? He called his friend who worked at Zenith and somehow got hold of if a real kid's bank statement. And then from that bank statement, was able to establish that Ifeo Reiki has been sending money to his girlfriend or his now ex-girlfriend. So that's how he was able to establish that Ifeo Reiki snatched his girl from him. And, you know, very incidentally, that incident was actually mentioned in that email thread that went out to the investors, that embarrassing email thread, which, which was linked in the article. However, I had to redact all of the names, obviously for privacy and for legal purposes. So... I just thought, first of all, something very unethical has happened, right? Someone has used his position to snatch you know, a girlfriend of his subordinate, who also happens to be his subordinate in, within the same office, right? There's already a whole world of ethical 
problems in there. And then in response to these ethical violations, somebody then goes and does something which isn't just unethical, but very, very much illegal, right? Getting access to someone's private banking data illegally, basically. And then doing so in a way that people actually found out. And, you know, so many people found out that I heard this story from like three different sources. So how on earth is this allowed to happen? How on earth is it that the, the banking information of Nigerian residents isn't safe? And random people can have access to your bank statements, can know who you're sending money to, can know where money is coming into your account from, can know how much is in your account. How can such information be in the public domain? So these were the issues. So, but anyway, that was an aside. So this email campaign specifically spoke to sexual harassment allegations against Benga Agbola, specifically, nobody else. However, when Benga Agbola held the town hall meeting, as I'm sure you heard in the recording, he did not speak to those, to those allegations at all. Instead, what he basically said was, hey, we're adults here. Right? So if this person is sleeping with this person, it's not anybody's business. And you have no right to question people's personal choices and people's personal lives. And I look, some people are even just married on paper, right? With the obvious inference and implication that, look, whether I'm married, because obviously both he and Kuroki are married. In fact, they, are, they happen to be, to be brothers-in-law, funny story. But that whether or not we're married, whatever it is we're, we're doing with our penises outside of work hours is not your business. So don't ask and don't. That was essentially what he said. That was essentially the, the point that I took out of that town hall recording, which was why I thought it needed to go into the story as well, because I thought this was important. In Because I, I was trying to tell a story not just about fraud and ethical violations and illegal activity and chargebacks and things like that. I was also trying to paint a portrait of the culture within Nigerian fintech. Because don't get it twisted, being a, he might be the biggest fish, but he's very much just one of the fish. There are many others who are like him who might even be worse. It's just that he's the biggest one. So I thought that it's important to capture that picture, capture that snapshot of what it means to work and to exist within such an environment. Because it's often the case that there is a perception in Nigeria over the past four, five, six years now that somehow tech is going to save Nigeria and tech is going to save Africa. That the same way tech helped like leapfrog stuff like um, proper telephone infrastructure and proper banking infrastructure. Tech helped to leapfrog all of that because everyone has a mobile phone and everyone has a mobile money account or a crypto account or whatever. So there's this perception that tech in itself is a social good in itself. So just for the fact that something is tech and people, people work in tech, people are affiliated with tech, they're somehow above question, right? And they're they are above being, being challenged for things that, that they might do wrong. So I thought it was important for this story to be told, especially in, and it was very funny that this story had kind of came out in the like immediate aftermath of a sort of related conversation which was going around in Nigeria about horrible bosses. I found that very hilarious when the horrible bosses story came out as well, because to an extent, I almost felt as if this was preempting my story until I realized that this was just, this is a story about like nobody, right? Like. Some guy called Zeboku Banjo, at the time, I think he had like 300 Twitter followers or something. Nobody knew who he was. The most, what he was most famous for was his appearance in a sort of uh, viral Twitter video where he was like blowing up at someone like, a, I don't know, exploding tomato kind of way. And I just thought like, 
why on earth is it this guy that everyone is dogpiling on when you have somebody who is a hundred thousand times more important who is worse than this guy and i actually sort of used my, my twitter account to sort of hint that i might be doing something in that space later on when i spoke to somebody who knows someone who knows somebody who who is in the sort of uh, corporate comms team at flutterway what i was informed was Apparently, there was no point where it occurred to anyone that perhaps what you need to do is keep quiet and observe. That the first thing, the, the, the immediate response, every time they feel like there might be some kind of adverse story or a PR crisis coming up, it's just go on the offensive, just attack, 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 right? Not very smart, not very creative, no sort of multiple layer thing it just this one track mind thing that just go on the attack go on the offensive which is exactly what they did and which incidentally ended up triggering the response from clara odero you are kenyan so i'm sure you must have seen the story that, that she put out in response to the press release that they put out which was in response to my story which didn't even exist yet but i just teased its existence so i found that really funny as an aside but yeah just to round up what this this part of the conversation, I thought it was important that that story needed to be told so that people would understand that, yes, tech has done a lot of good things for Nigeria, but tech is agnostic. Like, tech is not in itself a good thing. Tech people are not in themselves good people. IBM, which, which was, was probably one of the world's oldest tech companies, IBM technology was used in Nazi death camps, right, to number Jews, we're going to be killed. So tech can be used for anything and by anyone. So just the fact that tech exists and the fact that people are in tech doesn't mean something good is happening and doesn't make them good people, doesn't make them beyond reproach, beyond question, beyond challenging. So that's what I hope to achieve. And I think the story did achieve that. We are running to one hour now. Dean, do you have a question? Yeah, quite a few. But I, I think what I'm most curious about is over the first I'd even say really three hours when the story was published, there was already a ton of reactions, even before it was really possible to finish reading. So I'm curious about how prepared do you think the organization was for this? Then two, in terms of the all the victims and potential witnesses to some of the allegations you made, how many of them were refusing to speak as a result of self-preservation or as a result of organization preservation where they didn't want to cause any harm to Flutterwave but do not mind the fact that they would need to share that. With regard to the preparation of the corporate comms team at Flutterwave, funny enough, I wasn't supposed to have this access, but I had access to, to a WhatsApp group, which they basically used to coordinate. So they have this thing called the task force, which is basically a group of... Internet noisemakers, let me just put it that way. Some of them are supposedly lawyers, some of them are supposedly PR practitioners, whatever. But it's basically just Twitter loudmouths, right? They have a group of people like that. And the purpose of that group is to put out fires as and when they may appear. And one of the, the people in that group, I think she's a, she's a lady you might know. Um, she goes by the handle Himochilios. So when I teased the existence of, of that story, right, and... Nobody even knew for a fact that this story existed. I just teased that, you know, I might be doing something 
in that area. Came to that group and immediately started insulting me. I wasn't supposed to have known this because I'm not in that group. But a journalist always has his sources. That was the first thing she did. She then made a comment to the effect of, oh, you know, it's just David. That, yeah, when he writes stuff that it makes a lot of noise and whatnot. But when you settle down and read it again, you just realize that there's nothing there, that the story doesn't hold any water, something to that effect. So she was already preemptively sort of like trying to like lay the groundwork for how they were going to approach this story. And true to form, immediately, as you said, within two or three hours of the story being published, she had already come out with a reaction, which she ended up deleting because it turned out to be a stupid reaction. She didn't know what she was talking about. Her reaction was something to, to the effect of, oh, what kind of nonsense is this? Like, like how can you call this insider trading? That doesn't seem no insider trading doesn't apply to a company whose stock is privately traded, essentially. It's only applicable to publicly traded stocks, which is false, by the way, which is completely false because the SEC has stated this that insider trading laws apply to privately traded stocks as well. The U.S. SEC has stayed subject to the U.S. SEC. So I think as soon as someone pointed that out to her, then she went and quietly, quickly deleted her, her tweet. But I, I'd already seen it, right? I have a screenshot of it on, on my phone, actually. So that's the extent of Flutterwave's thinking when it comes to strategic communications. I did mention that they have a very good ability to prevent bad information from leaking out of the company. But I don't really think that's due to any like real skill or talent of their PR people. I think it's just that they're really, really, really good at bullying people and really good at keeping people in a constant state of fear. So everybody's just absolutely terrified to speak out, even after leaving the company. Some of these people I spoke to have left the company two, three, four years ago and are still scared to talk about it. Once some of these people, once they just see the name, because obviously they have a very loud professional profile in Nigeria, once they just see the name, I just realized that I sent a WhatsApp message and it's just showing the single tick and the profile picture has disappeared, which means the person has blocked me, right? That happened a couple of times. Once you just see the name, they just absolutely switch up, become terrified. Like, oh, I don't want to talk to you because, you know, please, I don't want a problem from, from Flutterwave, right? Because they know what is going to happen when they speak out. So that's pretty much the extent of the genius of Flutterwave's uh, PR and comms department. They're just very good at bullying people. They're just very good at sending out social media vuvuzelas like Motivius to, to get out and start bullying people on the internet. Nothing more. That's pretty much the extent of it. And then to the second question about the extent to which people were afraid of speaking to me and their motivations for wanting or not wanting to speak to me. Of, of those who agreed to speak to me, I classified them broadly into two categories. There were those who had some kind of broad interest in like justice or the true story being told or, you know, there were, there were one or two who broadly fit in, into that category. Those are the ones that it was like the easiest to, to, to get along with. And then there were those who were just looking for something for themselves, right? Flutterwave had done something to them and they were trying to protect their own interests. So they wanted their shares or they wanted a, a fair price for their shares. There were selfish reasons and it was very clear in my interactions with these people that we were going to have a problem because every single time, like, for example, I, I would ask for some certain information, which might even help their own, their own case and help push the story forward, but they would deny me access to that thing because, well, doing this, as they're concerned, this doesn't necessarily help their case as much as this other thing would help their case. 
but and and it also damages lots of in the process. So they are not interested in that. Even if that thing is the truth, they are not interested in putting it out. It's just about me, 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 me. me. That's what a lot of it was. I'll also say this: the um, sort of main character syndrome that I'm sure you must have observed people like Ian displaying on Twitter. It seems to be a, 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 an endemic thing at Flutterwave, right? It seems to be, because I would say like 95% of the people I spoke to have a like sense of like being the center of the earth, right? Everything is about them. One of these sources I spoke to, when I showed this person the draft, this person actually complained that uh, you didn't highlight my contribution. There was something to that effect. And he was like, what? You really think the story is about you? So. Yeah, there were those broadly those two categories. A few people who were just generally interested in the abstract concept of justice and truth, and then the vast majority were just looking for something for themselves. And then it now became an, a case of me having to sort of play people off against each other, so to speak, and then um, having to balance, like, know what is useful and what is not, what is valuable and what is not, know what to put in, what to ignore know what is included for self-aggrandizement and what is actually useful for pushing the story forward, that sort of thing. And then of those who didn't agree to speak to me, I would say there were broadly two categories as well. So one of the categories were those who they would like to claim that they are not afraid, but they've moved on and they didn't want to talk about it, which obviously just means that they are afraid, but they're in denial about the fact that they are afraid, right? Because if, if not for the fact that you're afraid, what else is it that is going to make you refuse to talk about something which clearly still bugs you, something which clearly still disturbs you, or something which clearly still has an impact on your life, on your mental health, on your career prospects, on everything. And you're refusing to talk about it. So you say it's because you've moved on, you're, you know, you're a Christian, you know, you've left it for God, you know, and that is bullshit, right? It's obviously you're scared. So there was that category. And then there were those who were honest about the fact that they were terrified. They're just terrified. They were, some were very upfront about it, some hinted. But it was just very obvious that this law, maybe in another lifetime, in another set of circumstances, they might have been willing to help. But Winga Gola has become, has become sort of like this sort of Lord Voldemort kind of personality within the space that to risk being identified by him as someone that has gone against him, as one of them told me, would be to basically say goodbye to working in tech in Nigeria forever because you also have to remember that apart from the fact that Flutterwave is such a powerful company in the Nigerian tech space, Winga Gola also has investment in, I don't want to say pretty much every other tech, significant tech company in Nigeria, but definitely at least in the fintech space or in the tech space in general, it's difficult to think of any company that has any sort of like high growth outlook that doesn't have GB on its cap table. He has fingers in everybody's pie. So everybody's terrified that the minute you are identified as a black sheep that went after GB, the entire Nigerian space is going to blacklist you. No one is going to employ you because GB is on everybody's cap table. GB is an investor in everybody's startup. So you can't work for anybody's startup when GB is an investor or they're looking to get GB as an investor, right? So that was a real fear. And then there was this one particular person whose name I will graciously not mention even though she really doesn't deserve that grace. But this one person whom I reached out to, she said, oh, I don't want to speak to you. That's it. I'm not interested in talking to you. And I said, fine, this is noted. And I left it at that. And then she came back by herself a few minutes later. Clearly, she had gone to have a word with her boss. This was someone who was fired in January, by the way. She had been fired from the company since January. 
clearly she went back and had a word with her ex-boss. I don't know, maybe trying to find her way back into his good books or, I don't know, bribe, use, like, the information as a way to bribe her way back into Flutterwave. I don't know what she was trying to do. When she came back a few minutes later, she was like, okay, so I'm just curious. What is it that you want to talk about? So, And I in- instantly knew what the game was, right? So I said, yeah, I'm doing a story about office bullying and sexual harassment and flutter, even though that wasn't what the story was about. That's what I wanted people to think the story was about when I wasn't sure what their intentions were. So we had a conversation. We had a 45-minute WhatsApp call. And throughout this conversation, this girl was, first of all, it was very obvious she was recording the conversation. It was very, very, very obvious, first of all. And then secondly, throughout the conversation, she kept referring to Flutterwave as we, 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 and us. And the entire conversation, it, it, it flowed like a conversation between a customer and a customer service rep, right? And she being the customer service rep. This is somebody who is not, she's not an HR personnel, she's not a lawyer, she's not anything, but was trying to, basically trying to explain to me how stock options work and how oh, all of these people who are talking about how they are cheated for their stock options, they don't know what they're talking about. And somehow she does, even though these are people who were far senior to her, who joined the company before she did, who know infinitely more about Flutterwave than that, who have forgotten, right? And she was just, oh, you know, GB is the best thing since sliced bread and blah, 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 blah. And it was so obvious that as soon as that conversation ended, she just basically sent our entire chat and it wasn't a coincidence that within a few days, I believe it was within a week of when we had that conversation, was when they went and pushed out that 2,000 word press release inside somebody's newsletter. And then the rest is history. So yeah, sorry to have gone on for a bit, but I, I hope that answered the question. Yes, we are joined by June. Uh, June has a question. June, you can go ahead and ask the question. Hi, it's not a question. It's just several comments. <laughs> Eric, thank you. David, thank you. I want to thank you. For years, I had heard about what was going on around Flutterwave. I think the insider trading thing was new in the article, but these are the things people used to talk about them quietly. And I remember for a long time, I kept saying, oh, the chickens will come home to roost. The, chicken will, the chickens will come home to roost. Thinking investors would raise their eyebrows. For example, around the Axis Bank conflict. There were questions around the numbers that were being thrown around initially in terms of accounts and access and so on. And the company kept raising money, the valuations kept increasing. And when that happens, you start to gaslight yourself and you tell yourself you're the ones who are not reading the situation correctly, because why would these, for example, brand name investors continue to invest? And I think what was also interesting was some of these investors were warned about what was going on a long time ago right? And they kept adding money to the company. And I think some of the investors, I don't know who all of them are, but some of the investors in Flutterwave are culpable for what has been happening. And I think this is something that is important to highlight. They're not innocent. And they've sort of, they create these cultures or exacerbate these cultures just because of the money and the potential. So I think there's another side to this where that does need to be talked about. Like for, for me, I hope someone will, or some information will come out about who exactly these people were so that even those of us who are in the space can choose, for example, not to engage with such investors. Also for me, what is so important about what you've done is offering accountability for this sort of thing. As you mentioned, these things happen everywhere. They're often buried. A lot of people attack you. I noticed, I know Clara 
when I went to sort of defend her, also some people were attacking me and people make general statements about why are we talking about this company? It's so important. It's bad for the ecosystem and so on. When the reality is we cannot have a healthy ecosystem if we don't have accountability. I am an entrepreneur in this space. I lived in the U.S. for a very long time. I want U.S. investors. A lot of U.S. investors do not trust the continent. They'll make assumptions about corruptions and generalizations and so on. And how are we going to get out of that kind of thinking if we don't have the kind of accountability, for example, that has been called out here? So for me, this is a very, very positive thing, no matter how painful it may seem and no matter what the short-term impact it may have for some of us raising money and so on. And then the third thing I wanted to mention was I, I operate in Kenya and Kenya also, the Kenya tech ecosystem has also had a lot of gatekeepers in the past. And there's a time when some of us started calling it out. And what you find out is that there's so many people who, let's say, are eating out of the hands of these so-called gatekeepers, who when they're seeing things such as sexual harassment and so on, if someone brings it up, they will spring up to defend them. I mean, including women in the ecosystem. And what I'm hoping is that what we're seeing with this Flutterwave story is going to even accelerate sort of the demolishing of this kind of gatekeeping, hero worship kind of thing. And then lastly, I wanted to say there's a lady who I was talking to yesterday um, who's been in the Kenyan fintech space for a while. And she mentioned to me that she had had almost every experience that you spoke of in your article. And I think also that Clara spoke of. And she's worked in a number of Kenyan fintechs. So these kinds of behaviors are happening in multiple organizations and perhaps are more rampant. I don't know if that's true in that space because of maybe the kind of money and power it has. So also from, I think, just a personal and human perspective, just like the lady you said cried when she read the story about the Uber lady, there are people who are relating to this who I think might also sort of get some relief from seeing this kind of thing come out. And hopefully people will be a little bit more cautious in these spaces. I think there are lots of firms. I mean, there's so much grifting that happens in the tech space. I'm just kind of hoping that stories will come to the surface and then we can kind of move on to sort of like a more healthy overall environment. That's it for my comment. Great point, June. A quick one for you. Why are you very convinced that this is positive for ecosystem? Because generally the people were also saying it's negative to raise something like that about a startup that is one of the biggest, at least in Africa. Why are you convinced that this is good for the ecosystem long term? First of all, I don't think it's possible or easy to hide things forever. Eventually, things come out. And I think it's better to have things come out sooner than later. I think that's one thing. So if we didn't find out about Flatterwave today, we'll find out about find out about it maybe five years from now when the cost will have been higher. And then I think what people want to invest in is in a trusted environment. You want to know if someone is going to misbehave because misbehavior will happen. It happens in the valley. It happens everywhere. Part of it is just human nature. You want to know that there are systems that will hold people accountable sooner or later. I think that's what people want. For me, that's the more important part. It's like, yes, we know there will be improprieties, but there are people who will talk about those improprieties. And then that, I think, has the effect of potentially dissuading impropriety or shortening the length within which it happens. 
Good points. Uh, David, do you have a response to June? I agree wholeheartedly with her. I think it's very interesting how a lot of the responses, the negative responses to my story have basically centered around how, oh, Autoweb is a systemically important institution in the African fintech space and in the African tech space, and how it doesn't benefit anyone to bring Flutterwave down, or why would you want to destroy Flutterwave? And I'm just going to point out that up until, I don't know, beginning of February, I had the Flutterwave Butter app on my phone, which I'm using to have this conversation right here. I don't have any interest in destroying Flutterwave. Without... For the avoidance of doubt, Photowave has a viable product, right? The product, the product can always be better, obviously, but there is a viable product. It has a good product. The purpose of this story is to call out bad management practices, right? And just overall poor corporate governance, which are, and these are issues that can be solved through board and investor action. Right? Nobody needs to shut Photowave down to stop these things from happening. So... I think people need to stop throwing that red herring around that somehow by not defending bad behavior and by not protecting badly behaved people, somehow they're going to destroy the African tech ecosystem. I have a friend, Kanku, he works at Stripe. You might know him on this, on, on Twitter as uh, K-Denks, as K-Denks. And he always calls this thing, uh, when we speak privately, he describes this thing to me as the racism of low expectations. Where, first of all, outsiders don't expect good behavior from Africans. After all, they're just Africans. And Africans themselves don't expect good behavior of themselves. Nobody's asking for, for Flutterwave and for you know, other entities in, in similar spaces to be, I don't know, what's, what's the best run company in the world you can think of. Nobody's really asking for such lofty things. Everybody's just asking for some basic baselines of corporate behavior and of workplace etiquette. That's what everyone is asking for. That's it, it's nothing more. Stay away from fraud, right? Because Africa already has enough of an image problem. Nigeria specifically has a very, very bad image problem. The last thing you need is for a Nigerian startup to be associated with fraud in any way. So stay away from fraud. If you are a man, especially in a position of power, don't use that position of power to sleep with your female subordinates. Don't do it, right? It might not be illegal, but it's definitely, even if some will argue that it's not unethical because it's consensual or whatnot, how consensual really is it? And even if you want to make all these arguments, the truth is that it's just not a good idea in general to sleep with someone you work with, whether or not they, you, are, you are the superior or not. So just don't do these things, right? Don't steal from people. Don't commit fraud. Don't screw over your, your employees in the process of doing insider trading. Don't screw over your current employers while using their resources to build this thing that you're trying to build. Like, be fair to people. I don't think these are, like, massive, unreasonable expectations to have of anyone. So the idea that somehow um, not standing for people who are guilty of these things and not covering these things is somehow they're trying to destroy Africa's fintech superstar. It's absolute nonsense, right? Flutterwave didn't exist seven years ago. Today it exists. The valuation might be bullshit, but on paper it's worth $3 billion, right? So clearly some kind of value creation process has happened and Africans did, right? So if, if that set of Africans could do it, who is to say that another set of Africans can do something even more or wants to do something even more? So yeah, absolutely. The point of this story is, and the point of stories like this, is to create an environment where such behavior becomes frowned on and people start to feel like there are consequences 
for bad behavior because that's one of the major problems in Nigeria in general. The fact that people just don't feel like there are consequences for bad behavior. People think they can get away with anything. And they're right. They actually can't get away with anything. So if that can change, then what is the problem? Good point. Perhaps at this point, I should mention to the audience that if you want to ask questions, you can either send us a DM. We'll see the question. Another way in which you can reach us is to check the pinned tweet, which is the post of the event. You can write your question below that. And then also you can request to speak. But we try to limit as much as possible the people who can speak uh, to keep the spaces as civil as possible. And so a question to David is, the counter narrative is that there is a vendetta against Flutterwave's founders. So perhaps you can give your perspective on that and also... What motivates you about this story? What do you want to see accomplished as a result of publishing this story from your end? I know you've given tidbits of it here and there, but you can respond to those two questions. So first of all, I don't know anything about any vendetta. So I think that whoever asked that question needs to tell me who is responsible for the vendetta and where the vendetta is coming from. And then I'll go have a look to see if I, I can find out anything about it. So what I can say is... My own personal interest in the story, it comes from the same place that the, the personal interest I have from all my other stories comes from, right? So if you go through my publication, for example, that's uh, West Africa Weekly, you will see the vast variety of stories that I've done. You see that I've done stories that involve governments. I've done stories that involve international relations and diplomacy. I've done stories that cross-border terrorism. I've done stories that involve civil rights and, and human rights. And I've done stories that involve tech. I've done stories that involve uh, intellectual property violation. I'm, so I'm a bit of a generalist, right? So if I see a good story, I want to do it. I'm a journalist. It's my job, right? Journalists go after good stories. It's what we do. I don't necessarily even need to have this sort of personal investment in the story for me to want to do it. All that needs to happen is that the story is a solid story. There's something there. And then Telling this story is somehow objectively in public interest. Those are the two conditions for choosing a story. And if those two conditions are met satisfactorily, I will tell the story. So I don't really know much about whatever vendetta. I mean, if there is a vendetta, then, I mean, based on the sheer amount of stuff that someone like GB has done, to be honest, it, it, it wouldn't be a surprise if there is some kind of vendetta against him. Because when you spend this long screwing over people so badly and doing it to so many people so consistently, to the point where even people who basically helped you set up the company, right, you screwed them over as well. Like people who were with you almost from day one, right? Developers who were with you pretty much from day one. People who, without them, Flutterwave wouldn't exist. They were with you right from the days of capture payment solutions, which some people know as pay with capture, right? Which later morphed into Flutterwave. They were with you from that time. And eventually they left. And when it was time for them to, to cash in on their stock options, you screwed them over. So when you've done things like this for so long, then yeah, maybe people will have a vendetta against you. And then maybe that makes it easier for people to speak to a journalist. And maybe that makes it easier for people to give information to that journalist who might happen to be a journalist who is good at telling stories the way they deserve to be told. So if there is a vendetta, I think Vinga Agbola needs to go look in the mirror to find out where that vendetta came from, if indeed there is such a thing. Yeah, yes. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I have two more questions. The first one is, there's been a lot of blowback with trying to get 
other sides of the story. I think it was Ian's main issue, and then you reached out to Flutterwave. They mostly refused to comment. Just curious about what that situation was like for you. And then you're a believer, I think similar to me, that we can create a healthier tech business and who knows, maybe eventually governance ecosystem in Africa. But what are your overall hopes that this story would end up creating, let's say, going forward? Not just for the current entrepreneurs, but for the future entrepreneurs. I hope it demonstrates that it's not everything that you're going to get away with. And it's not every time that you're going to get away with everything. Because I think the main reason, actually, that things like this happen, not just in the tech space, but in the governance space across both public and private sectors, is that, again, I can't really speak for Kenya, even though I have a friend here who is a Kenyan, and we always make jokes that Nigeria and Kenya are the the problematic twins because we seem to mirror, mirror each other in this really weird and often destructive way. But I can definitely speak for Nigeria, right? A large, if not the largest part of the reason why things do not work the way they are supposed to here, the re- a large part of the reason why people act badly here, it's not because there is something in the air in this part of the world. It's not because there's something in Nigerian DNA that makes people act badly. It's for the simple fact that there are no consequences, right? The legal system clearly isn't going to do anything for you. I mean, good luck to you taking anything to court in Nigeria. If you take something to court in Nigeria, that means that you have five or 10 years of your life to donate to the states, right? Because you are just going to have your time wasted, right? No matter how much money you have, that's just the reality, right? The governance in, in Nigeria is more notional than real. Right. It exists as a notion, but in reality, it's pretty much an ungoverned space in so many ways. Right Now, in the absence of solid governance, as I was saying in the clubhouse room yesterday, I believe that the use of shame is one of the most uh, important factors for behavioral modification in, in human civilization. Right, The fear of shame, the strategic use of shame. But in Nigeria, it's the case, and across Africa, actually, to, to an extent, it's the case that nobody's going to do anything for you. Nobody's going to come for you. Nobody's going to shame you. And if anybody tries to shame you, all you need to do is get enough people on your side to shout that person down. And that's it. You'll be fine. So there's that perception that absolutely nothing is going to happen to you. There are no consequences, whether legal or social, for bad behavior. Now, my thinking is that I can't fix the government, right? I've tried. I can't fix the government. All I've got out of trying to fix the government is having my life under threat and having to go into exile and become a UNHCR reference number, right? So I can't fix the government. But within the social space, right, that use of shame is still something that does have some power and should be deployed, should be used, right? So, so even if the state either can't or won't do its job, the people themselves can have a form of self-governance which can be achieved through that directed use of shame, right? Social penalties. These are things which should exist, but they don't exist. When you hear that someone defrauded his employer, someone screwed over his employees, didn't pay their salaries, but he bought himself a Range Rover. These are things that are supposed to come with social penalties in this part of the world, but they don't. That's the problem. They don't come with those penalties. And that's why bad behavior keeps getting worse. Essentially, it keeps getting rewarded. Like, all you have to do is just 
have no shame, basically. Just be shameless and you become bulletproof. Like that's like the hack to making it in Nigeria. Just be as bold faced and shameless and you know one track minded as you can. And that's it. You will be successful beyond your wildest dreams because there is that total absence of social consequence, of social penalties, ostracism, those things. These are very important elements of self-governance of the population, but these things don't, they don't really exist. And that's what stories like this are supposed to try to set up, that look, if you do something like this in the future, there is a possibility, right? No matter how small that possibility is, there is a possibility that there's one rogue entity somewhere, somewhere in the world, nobody knows where he is, where he's operating from. Nobody knows what the hell motivates him, what is wrong with this guy what his problem is in his life, right? But there is somebody somewhere who might decide to take your story on and might make you famous in a way that you don't like, right? And just for the fact that that little possibility exists, no matter how minute that possibility is, but for the fact that it has been demonstrated and not just demonstrated on some random person, but demonstrated on the biggest fish that there is in, in one of these spaces in this part of the world, then it means that at least some people, not everyone, but some people are going to think two or three times before doing those things again. Some people are going to think twice. The next time you want to go hit on your subordinate, knowing full well that she's not going to say no to you, not necessarily because she wants to say yes to you, but simply because she wants to keep her job. She wants to keep her salary. Next time you want to do that and you think, is there a possibility that this thing I'm doing now, I'm being recorded? And then my recording is going to end up on some website somewhere and 20,000 people are going to listen to me saying this thing. Just for the fact that that possibility gets flagged up in your mind, that might make you start acting better. And that's what this is trying to achieve. I hope that makes sense. Yes, tons of questions for you. So I think we'll try to keep the answers short uh, so that you can uh, go through as many of them as possible. So two on flat away with themselves. So do you expect a response from them? And secondly, do you see that the business model itself is fundamentally misstated? Or is this just a case of flat away's quote unquote old original sins? Um, we can take two and then we can uh, go on to the rest. I had a long conversation earlier today with someone who's, whose name I cannot mention and who requested that I absolutely do not reference him in any way that makes him identify it. But this is someone who was there even before Flutterwave existed, right? Somebody who was there, somebody that knows where all the bodies are buried, right? And what he said was that, look, the thing about Flutterwave is that even if they make it past this, even if Wenger Golasov somehow survives this, being outed as this thing that he is, and you know, all these things that he has done, in another three to four years, you're going to see that this company cannot survive. His words, not mine. That's what he said. And the reason he said is that the company is built on a faulty foundation and that that foundation cannot be fixed again his words not mine so essentially what what he was saying was that look from day zero this company wasn't really structured in such a way as to be a successful self-sustaining entity with sort of long-term sustainability that this company from day one was run in fraudulent ways it was subsidized through money that was obtained fraudulently, including theft from Access Bank, like basically brazen theft. So things like using, I forget the name of the, the special purpose vehicle that was created, but it's some shadowy entity which used apparently used to invoice Access Bank for 100 million naira every month. 
supposedly for tech services rendered. And nobody knew what those services were. And in fact, that caused such an issue that when the audits that I referenced in the story, when that audit was being done, all those payments were shut off instead, right? Because for basically the best part of two years, there was some entity that was to Flutterwave, which was billing Access Bank 100 million naira monthly for some unspecified tech services rendered. So when you have a business that from day one was essentially being funded through illegal means, was being funded through theft, right? Like basically just open theft, right? Because essentially what it is was GB had some kind of uh, trust-based relationship. As I got to find out today, had some kind of trust-based relationship with with the CEO of Access Bank, right? With Herbert Wigwe. And Herbert essentially thought that GB was building a product for Access Bank. And Herbert essentially gave GB blank check to do what he wanted. And some people higher up were aware that GB had August permission to do whatever it is that he wanted to do. So essentially, this guy just went and just took advantage of that trust and basically just filled his boots for two years. Spent two years building Flutterwave and eating out of Access Bank. So when you have an entity that comes from such a background, an entity that has never really given a thought to how to survive in, because contrary to the impression that Flutterwave is always eager to create that, the Nigerian market is this wondrous place where, oh my God, population is so big and, you know, it's very easy to make money in Nigeria. It's actually not true. Nigeria is actually a very, very difficult market to operate in. And yes, there is a large population on paper, but how much of that population is economically relevant? Not much. I will tell you, for example, a statistic that shocked me and continues to shock me every time I see it. As at, I'm not sure how up to date, how accurate the statistic is now, but as at 2020, there were more registered Uber users in Kenya than in Nigeria. Nigeria's population is at least, I think it's two and a half times that of Kenya at least. And there were more registered Uber users in Kenya than in Nigeria. That's how poor the Nigerian population is. That's how poor the Nigerian market is. So the idea that, oh my God, you come in and process payments for 150 million people, it's not true. That's pretty much not how it works, right? The other payment processors in that space who are actually trying to run a business can actually tell you what realistic numbers look like. And it's not those huge things that FlutterWave has been declaring. And the reason FlutterWave has been able to consistently declare these huge volumes is basically because of fraud, right? Charging people's cars multiple times, something they should do in South Africa. I didn't include this in the, in the article, but I'm going to mention it here. Something they should do in South Africa where payment which is taken in in rands, which is the South African currency, will be booked as payments taken in dollars. So a transaction worth 250 rands was processed and it'd be recorded on the books as 250 US dollars, which means that with a stroke of a pen, you've 10 or 12 X the amount of money that was actually made. So these are the vanity metrics that you present to investors and then you get your $170 million raises and you get your billion dollar valuations. And it's all built on bullshit. It's built on fraud. So, as I said, Flutterwave does have a solid product, right? And I think there will always be a Flutterwave, regardless of whether or not there will be a Green Gargola. But as to whether the company in its current iteration will survive, I think we pretty much just have to wait and see. But this fellow that I spoke to was very on it, very, very on it. All right. Perhaps a question for uh, June, if you're here with us. Uh, maybe you can answer to give David a break. 
how much are startups losing in terms of capital because of poor governance and especially low expectations? You can take that chance to speak to the importance of having proper corporate governance and structures in place as you set up a startup, both for you as a startup, but also for the ecosystem as a whole. I, I don't think I have an answer to that question, particularly on the governance one. I think we lose a lot from the low expectations perspective. I mean, simply because there's always like a faith question. I mean, it's what David talked about. You know, can the African execute, right? So that means there's less funding than there could be. High potential companies don't get the funding they need or the wrong people who look like the people who have the money get the funding and then they don't go anywhere. Yeah, so I think I, I would relate more to the second part of your question, but not the first. All right, back to David now. Uh, there are some specific questions now. So one is about, was he aware that GB was using Access Bank's contact and resources while attending meetings with him? I think that's very specific, so maybe you can say yes or no to that. The second question was also very specific about your contacts or sources who worried about being identified by GB and FW. I think that's also a very specific question, so a, a short answer would suffice. And then finally, someone is asking for you to repeat the name of the WhatsApp task force that has the name of PR professionals and lawyers or something like that. The ones you mentioned as noise makers. I think those are specific questions, so short answers to those. And then we can move to the next batch of questions. Sorry. Okay. Well, the thing about yes. E is E talks too much. I think that's possibly his biggest problem as a human being, as a professional. He talks too much because, uh, to be honest, he's not the bad guy in this story, right? I, I try to, to be very fair to him while writing the story because everybody that I spoke to, when I brought him up, nobody really had anything bad to say about him. He's not the bad guy in this story. He didn't even have the power to be a bad guy. But the thing with him, and the same thing which was identified by the person I, I referenced earlier whom I spoke to today, was he has a very big mouth. He talks too much. He has that main character syndrome. He feels a need to be worshipped and to be revered. And his ego is the most important thing in the world. So, I mean, if he had just sort of not said anything, sort of like just kept his fingers off Twitter and not gone around granting interviews a couple of months ago like he did, possibly this person wouldn't even have asked this question. But now he has gone and put out this information to the public domain by himself. So unfortunately, he has made it very clear that he was aware of everything that happened, which is very unfortunate because, as I said, nobody I spoke to really had any bad words to say about him. In fact, they kind of saw him as a victim as well. But unfortunately, because he feels this need to pretend to be this genius founder that he's not, he went and granted an interview, I think it was two months ago, where he basically said, oh, Access Bank was aware that uh, GB and Adeliki were using their resources and they were, they were fine with it and blah, 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 blah. And the inference of that interview was that he knew when all of this was happening. And then he came out again on Twitter yesterday and said something to the effect of Access Bank was aware and blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, as I found out, as I explained a few minutes ago, it's not so much the case that Access Bank was aware as it was the case that GB had high-level permission from the Oga at the top to do something, and then he did something else with that permission. So by coming out and saying that Access Bank was aware and all of that, he's essentially implicating himself on the handed things that GB was doing. I don't know why he felt the need to involve himself in this. 
main character syndrome is a real is a, is a real handicap in life. But going on to the second question, that are is there a risk of people being identified by GB? Well, the thing is that, so for example, somebody who is who is currently in court with GB, there's no way GB is not going to know who that person is anyway, right? All of these people are not people who it would take a lot of effort on GB's part to, to, to identify, right? These are people he worked with for years. Some of them, probably even from the quotes, even from the speaking style, I can be identified in the quotes that I gave, gave to them. So you might even be able to identify them from just those quotes alone. But the purpose of their anonymity was anonymity from the general public, not from GB. You can't hide from your boss who knows you inside out and you also know him inside out. So the purpose of the, the anonymity wasn't to hide from GB. Right, because you can't hide from it. You will know. And then the final thing about the WhatsApp group, I don't know the name of the WhatsApp group, and I have a feeling the reason somebody asked that question is <laughs> to try and get some information out of it because possibly that person feels like maybe yeah. that person is a bit is closer to this story. So the person is a bit worried that, oh my God, does, does David have a spy inside our group or something? And moving on. So moving on, a few more questions. I want to finish as soon as possible. Uh, one is about balancing between uh, protecting the sources and also, of course, maintaining as much information as possible while not identifying the sources. How do you balance that out? And then also, why should people trust your sources? So when it came to protecting the sources, it should be pointed out once again that, as, as I just mentioned, the purpose of this wasn't to hide any of these people from Flutterwave or from GB, because I'm very sure that within 20 minutes of the story going live, GB and management team knew who every single person in the story was. Right? Now, none of this is especially difficult for them to figure out. The story wasn't written for them. right? It was written for the public. And the purpose of the, the, the audience of the story was the public, not Blinga Agola. So... I mean, and then the people themselves are adults, right? They, they knew what the risks were. They knew what they were getting into. Bear in mind that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these people are people who want something, right? There are people who are willing to risk something because they wanted something. It's not so much that out of the goodness of their hearts, they decided to come and speak to a journalist so that they can make the world a better place. No. A couple of them maybe did that, but for the majority, it was one personal interest, one individual interest or the other that they were trying to protect, and it was simply a case of taking as much of that as I could and using it in the story, as much of it as I could. So ultimately, you know, I did the best I could. And I also made a couple of difficult calls. But again, sometimes as a journalist, you have to make these calls, right? Because as I said, your loyalty is to the story. Your loyalty is to the truth, not to the individual, right? A journalist is only useful. A journalist isn't liked. None of these people are your friends. They just... They're just useful to them. And it's always something that, that I always keep in mind. At what point did Access Bank know of GB's involvement? And I wanted to ask also perhaps a question from my perspective is how come Access Bank themselves have not sued or at least if they have all these facts and information, they've had it for five years, how come they haven't like maybe taken Flutterwave to court? The very simple answer to that question is what I established for a fact during my conversation earlier today, which was that essentially the Ogadi talk, that's Herbert Wigwe, simply doesn't want to lose face. Right? Going to court would mean admitting that basically he was scammed by this young upstart. Right? GB is someone who's in his 30s, or is he early 40s? I think 30s. Right? Herbert is maybe twice his age, or 20 something years older than he is. Like 
at a completely different stage of his career as a, you know, a billionaire and everything. So he feels personally insulted and personally humiliated that this guy basically cheated him, right? This guy basically scammed him. And going to court or going public with this information will not just serve to humiliate him, it also serve to open him up to more people who want to come and try their luck. So the word from the top is basically just put a bold face on it, just move on. However, the word from the top is also that GB is personal non grata at Access Bank, which a lot of people don't realize right now. He's really not welcome there right now. There is a lot of bad blood there now. However, for the purpose of protecting the, the ego of a guy at the top, everybody's going to act like everything is fine, even though it's, it's really not. I've seen a question from someone asking for us to define insider trading. I would give it a shot and maybe then David, you can come in. Uh, insider trading basically means when you use information that is material, that means that it can impact the pricing of a particular stock. Uh, it's especially easier to identify in public companies, but it's also uh, present in private companies. So where you use material, non-public information in your power view, and then you use that to make a decision about investing in a particular stock. So in this case, especially of a private company, is when an employee comes to you and you force them to sell below market price, yet you know like in a few weeks you're going to raise and the valuation is going to 2x. So that's insider trading. So insider trading is where you use information that is material, non-public uh, about a company to at least to use it to your advantage in terms of making an investment or at least pushing someone to make an investment in this case. So it does apply to both public. It's more prevalent in public institutions because that's easier uh, to identify and see because the stock price moved, but it's also present in private companies. Any one of you wants to add something? June, Dean? I think June should take this. June, do you have something to add? No, I agree with you. What uh, GB did was insider trading. He had the information. It was not shared with his other investors. No one else had the opportunity to buy. So it is, it is accurately described. Yes. I want to spend just 10 more minutes at the maximum on this because I think we need to end the spaces. Back to David. Someone wants to know what more stories you have in store. I'm sure that's it's something you're privileged, but someone wants to know if you have more stories coming up of similar nature. And then someone also wants to know, are there people specifically in East Africa that you know that work on these kind of stories. Someone is specifically saying that East Africa has some of these issues and would want them to come out the front. As June indicated, some of the people do relate to some of these stories and they, they, they do want their stories to come forward. So if you have contacts in East Africa, you can let people know uh, of someone they can reach out to. So those two questions, and perhaps as I look at some of the other questions, I may have missed. Okay. First of all, the, I'm obviously not going to reveal if or what story that I'm working on next, because that would serve to preempt the story. The element of surprise is a very important part of, of the work that I do. So obviously that information is off limits. The second question, which was, do I have any contacts in East Africa? Well, if you're talking specifically about tech, I can't say off the top of my head that I know a tech journalist in East Africa who's, who specializes in stuff like this. And it's also important to keep in mind that just like in Nigeria, the the tech media in, in Eastern well, when I say East Africa, I mean Kenya, right? Because Kenya, like Nigeria is to West Africa as Kenya is to East Africa, right? The tech media in Kenya has the same issues as the one Nigeria has, which is that a lot of the tech players in Kenya also have their fingers in the media pie. So how independent is the tech 
media in Kenya, it's it's touch and go. So I wouldn't say off the top of my head that I know a Kenyan tech journalist who, who would do a story like this. There might be such a person, but I don't know off the top of my head. However, what I would say in a general sense, um, I would say one of the, the journalists that I look up to the most like in the world, not just in Africa, but in the world, is a Kenyan guy. His name is John John Alanam, right? And, and he runs an outfit called Africa Uncensored. And I think if there's such a thing as a journalist that I want to be, it's that guy. I should say, John was, was one of the people who approached to be a host on this space, but he was uh, a bit occupied today, but he sends his regards. So I should say that to you. Uh, another question someone is asking, if you have a follow-up story on this, do you have more information that you'd want to give us in another story? And then also someone agrees so some of the issues you raise as some issues that he's known but at this point i can ask you to maybe give us your thoughts on some of the questions that uh, i have said and then uh, we can have dean and june say the closing ones and then you can finally close for us yet again it's that thing of not preempting my story so even if there's a follow-up i, I can neither confirm nor deny that unfortunately dean june yes it's been a pleasure um to hear from you and i i, I hope it's been also useful for you to share your full story. I think a lot of people, especially from East Africa, didn't have an idea to the background of not just Flutterwave, but also your history. So very excited to see that. And I hope and also not hope to see more work from you in future, I guess. <laughs> but thank you so much for the work you've done and to more success and to more great work. June? Okay. Yeah, just a quick comment. I think there's such a big power differential between entrepreneurs or CEOs of companies and their employees, which David spoke to. I mean, even for example, if I'm cautioning someone about something, because I impact someone's salary, for example, the way they take my words versus the way they might take a colleague's words is very, very different. So it's very easy to... I don't even want to say abuse power, but, and, and I think even not understand what impact one has on their team or, and colleagues in this kind of environment. For me, this kind of journalism and this kind of conversation we're having is a good check for all of us. I don't think it's just about, for example, admonishing, in this case, Flutterwave or companies that are known to be like Flutterwave, but it's even good for calling people like me to be more sensitive and to be more thoughtful about what we're doing. Like none of us is beyond reproach. And I think for me, this is really excellent. I think some sort of, for lack of a better word, fear, fear is, I think, good for all of us to sort of drive us towards good behavior or enhance good behavior. So I'm thankful that this is happening. I think it's a very good thing. Thank All you. right. David, uh, David, I have a couple of closing questions. So one is on uh, your thoughts on the impact this has already had on the Nigerian and general corporate uh, governance ecosystem. Have you seen any visible signs of maybe the, the corporates in Nigeria being at least responding to the issues? And then the second one is about... There's been a lot of Bible verses being shared in the past few days. Has that always been his writing style or has someone tried to sue you because of this story that you've revealed so far? The first question, has this resulted in any change so far? It's, it's too early to say, to be honest. I, don't, I can't really say. 
And to be honest, if it has, then it wouldn't be my place to say that it has, right? It's my place to do the work. It's someone else's job to evaluate it. It's not my job to praise myself if I've done my work correctly. And then secondly, to be honest, I was really hoping not to have to answer more questions about E, especially as everybody knows that two of us don't get along because I'm trying not to make this conversation about myself or about him. So what I will just say is that it's possibly like a, a flutterwave thing because based on the interactions I had with his former colleagues, it seems to be like a contagious thing there, like main character syndrome. And I think people really need to understand that main character syndrome isn't something to be proud of. It's a disability, right? So like, you need to be able to get out of your own head sometimes and sort of like look at the world around you for what it is instead of living inside your own constant, you know, first-person player video game, which is what people like eat do. So, yeah, the whole thing about, you know, Debbie doesn't like me because I'm Christian. Please, like, can we just try to like tamp it down a bit. And this isn't directed at E specifically, this is just a general thing within this tech space specifically where there seems to be a lot of individual hero worshiping going on and a lot of really weird behavior, which is excused for being like some sign of genius or something like that. Somebody like just has a habit of saying like really incredibly stupid things, but you will say, oh my God, this person founded a company. So what he said can't be stupid. Right. It's like that emperor's new clothes kind of thing that the emperor is naked and he's clearly walking around with his ball slapping on his thighs. But, you know, you are not allowed to say that this is what is happening because he's the emperor. And so you pretend that it's some fantastic clothing somewhere that you are just too dumb to see or something. And then some guy comes out from somewhere and shouts the emperor is naked. And then you get angry at the guy that how dare you say the emperor is naked. And I always find myself being that guy, unfortunately. So... I just hope that we, we learn to, to do better, basically. Closing thoughts then on your story yourself and perhaps a reflection so far. Well, my closing thoughts are, first of all, the so far there doesn't seem to have been any kind of decision or action taken by the Flutterwave board or Flutterwave investors, which is really what the end goal is, right? The goal is not to destroy Flutterwave or to destroy anybody's business. The goal is to demonstrate that in the Nigerian and the African tech space that there is such a thing as baseline standards for behavior and corporate governance, right? So if the corporate board have enough of a spine to demonstrate that Flutterwave is bigger than Bingabola, then I think even the um, investment confidence in Africa's tech space is going to uh, experience an, an, an uptick if they're brave enough to do that. So I hope they do that. Um, I hope they don't fall for what they consider to be the easy way out and sort of like just cover their ears and cover their eyes and hope that eventually everybody will stop talking about it and just go away. Because that's kind of like a very familiar recurring thing of how Nigerian institutions, whether public or private, deal with problems. They just come, hopefully you get tired and you move on to something else. So hopefully they, they try another way this time around and we'll all be better off for it. And yeah, I just hope in general that whether it's the tech space or it's the political space or the governance space, that more and more people across the continent will learn to express their dissatisfaction. I'm not saying you necessarily have to come out and put your name out there or put your family at risk or anything, but that's why people like me exist. We are the ones who have decided to take that risk, take, take on that burden and have that risk appetite. So now that we're here, use us, right? So that information that needs to be put out there, please stop hoarding it. Please stop hiding it on your hard drives. 
and waiting till you die before anybody sees it. Stop keeping those screenshots in your Google Drive and looking at them all day and nobody ever sees it. Put those things out. If you don't want to put them out yourself, send them to people like, like us who, who do it. We'll do so on, on your behalf. And at the end of the day, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Thank you once again uh, for agreeing to come, David, uh, to the spaces and everyone else, Dean, June, also for joining and for the many people who've joined us on the spaces. I do want to reiterate that this is in an effort to just make sure that our ecosystem is as good as it possibly can be. So we try to have these engagements and conversations on really difficult topics sometimes, but uh, we definitely try to make sure that we can just raise the bar in terms of our ecosystem. We all love our African ecosystem and we really want it to grow and shine. So thank you, David, for shining a light on some of the issues that you're having. Some of these things, as June says, many people think about them, but they don't have the courage to write them and actually post them with uh, information and evidence. So we do hope something great comes out of this story and it impacts the rest of the ecosystem. So keep working at what you're doing.